Thanks for listening to this sermon from Redemption Church, Calgary North. We exist to see lost people saved, saved people matured, and mature people multiplied, all to the glory of God. For more information, visit us online at redemption.ca. Good morning. There is still a lot of traffic going on with kids. Um, So as you all find your seats again, I'll just introduce myself again. I'm the aforementioned youth director here at Redemption Calgary North. My name is Nathan. It's a great privilege to come and preach to you all uh, this morning. So let's keep Pastor Trevor and uh, Mike, one of our elders, in prayer as they're away for the next little while. Um, And let's jump into Genesis again. Uh, So last week, Pastor Trevor preached on Genesis 27, and I want to quickly review that before we begin this chapter, uh, because it'll help us to see chapter 28, what we're studying today, in its proper context. We should do that same thing with all of Scripture, understanding context to help us understand the passages we're studying. So, at the beginning of chapter 27, Isaac calls Esau in to him and says he wants to bless him, asking Esau to hunt game and bring him some food so that he will bless him, uh, contrary to God's promise of the blessing going to Jacob. Rebecca was listening. She tells Jacob what happened, tells him to go get two young goats so she can make Isaac delicious food for Jacob to bring to him, pretending to be Esau. So they concoct this plan so that Jacob would receive the blessing rather than Esau, attempting to deceive in order to make God's word to them come true, that Jacob would be blessed and the older would serve the younger. We were reminded last week that they could have gone about that in a more faith-filled way, uh, not involving deception, but they chose the wicked way. And so now at the end of chapter 27, they have to deal with the worldly woes that arise from this deceit. Esau wants to kill Jacob. Again, Rebecca heard this. Somehow her ears are everywhere. She hears everything. Nothing will get by her. So she hears that Esau wants to kill Jacob, and so she tells Jacob what she knows. She tells him to flee to Laban, her brother, in order that Jacob will not die. Rebecca takes a different approach with Isaac, though. We see she doesn't mention that uh, the, the reason she wants to send Jacob away is that Esau wants to kill him. Instead, she just mentions the fact that Esau's Hittite wives have made her loathe her life. Thus, we arrive at Genesis 28. So let's take up and read this chapter of God's word. Then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and directed him, You must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. Arise, go to Padan Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take as your wife from there one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you, that you may become a company of peoples. May he give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you, that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. Thus Isaac sent Jacob away, and he went to Padan Aram, to Laban, the son of Bethuel the Aramean, the brother of Rebekah, Jacob's and Esau's mother. Now Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Padan Aram to take a wife from there, and that as he blessed him, he directed him, you must not take a wife from the Canaanite women, and that Jacob had obeyed his father and his mother and gone to Padan Aram. So when Esau saw that the Canaanite women did not please Isaac, his father, Esau went to Ishmael and took as his wife, besides the wives he had, Mahalath, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nebaioth. 
Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and on the top, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at the first. Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go, and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear, wear excuse me, so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God, and this stone, which I have set up for a pillar, shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. Let's pray as we look into God's word. Heavenly Father, we praise you and we thank you for this morning, for this opportunity to come to worship for this opportunity to open your word. Lord, we pray that you would be with us, God, that you would guide us by your Holy Spirit into all truth and open our hearts and minds for the message that you have for us this morning. Lord, convict us. Lord, encourage us. Lord, spur us on to live a life that is pleasing to you. For your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, in this chapter, we will see the continued pagan thinking of this family that one must scheme and devise plans in order to accomplish the will of God, rather than trusting in God's sovereign power and walking in faith, knowing that he will accomplish his purposes. We will see this in four unholy preoccupations that the people in this account have. An unholy preoccupation with preservation, an unholy preoccupation with blessing, an unholy preoccupation with place, and an unholy preoccupation with provision. So we just spent time during communion reflecting uh, on our lives, on the uh, ways in which we have been uh, not faithful to the Lord. But let's double down on this. Let's double down on the ways in which uh, we submit to pagan thinking rather than Christian thinking this morning as we look at Genesis 28. So first, we see an unholy preoccupation with preservation. The beginning of chapter 28, as I mentioned already, to be understood correctly needs to take into account the end of chapter 27. So we see Rebekah fearing for the life of Jacob, wanting to send him away to Laban until Esau's anger turns away. Um, If you don't have a Bible this morning, just stick up your hand. Our ushers would be happy to give you a copy of God's Word so that we can make sure we are uh, reading the text and drawing out uh, its meaning faithfully. So make sure to take advantage of that if you do not have a Bible with you. So we see Rebekah's afraid that if Jacob stays, Esau will kill him, and God's promise will fail. Clearly, she also doesn't trust Isaac to handle this new situation correctly, because when she approaches Isaac to get Jacob sent away, she doesn't actually mention the whole reason she wants Jacob sent away. 
Rather, she masks her true concern with a different concern that she knows Isaac will agree with her on, that of a wife for Jacob, because she reminds Isaac, these Hittite women, these Canaanite women that Esau has married, these two wives that he has, have made life bitter for us. And so she essentially tricks Isaac into sending Jacob away for a wife when her primary concern is actually that of keeping Jacob alive. And so in her mind, this scheme, this plan she's devised, has two benefits. First, the primary concern will be solved because Jacob will be able to get safely away from Esau, but it also ensures that Jacob will go and find a suitable wife and not follow in the footsteps of his brother in that way, marrying um, Hittite women or Canaanite women such as those that Esau married. But what's the cost? First, Jacob, who has been blessed by Isaac with the Abrahamic promises of inheritance, land, offspring, must leave the inheritance with which he has been blessed. Jacob must go away from the land that has been promised to him and be a stranger in a foreign land, traveling across the wilderness, away from the promise given to him. And so rather than acting in faith and trusting God to work out the details of the blessing and Esau's uh, thirst for blood, Rebekah takes matters into her own hands and has Jacob leave the very land which he was promised. So listen again to what Isaac says as he sends Jacob away. Pay special attention to that, the promise of land, the promise of the inheritance that he's supposed to receive, and then the response that comes out of it. Verse 3, God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you that you may become a company of peoples. May he give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you, that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. So there we see Isaac blesses Jacob, confirms the blessing of the land. Okay, we got that. May you possess this land. And then verse 5. Thus Isaac sent Jacob away, and he went to Padan Aram. What? That doesn't really make sense. Right? Isaac confirms the Abrahamic blessing, reiterating the same promises that God gave to Abraham. May you possess this land. And then he sends him away from that land. How does that make any sense at all? If the true concern was simply to get Jacob a non-Canaanite wife, they could have done what Abraham did for Isaac. Sending a servant to get his wife and bring her back to the land, not leaving that land that has been promised just as Abraham sent his servant who brought Rebekah back for Isaac. Now apparently, even though that is part of Isaac's own story, he didn't think of that. He's like, oh, Rebekah, you think we should send him away to get a wife? I agree with you. Let's do it. May you possess this land. Now leave this land. So remember her motive. Remember Rebekah's motive. She was preoccupied with preservation. She didn't want Jacob to die and lose the promise. And she clearly does not trust God to work out that situation. So she sends Jacob away from the very land he is to inherit. She's so preoccupied with preservation that she goes against what God has promised. Rebecca is thinking like a pagan. I must take matters into my own hands to ensure that what God said will happen, happens. Now how often do we think along these same lines? How often do we have an unholy preoccupation with preservation rather than focusing on the purposes of God? One way that comes to my mind, probably because it's convicting for me as well, is in evangelism. 
We know God has commanded us to go and make disciples, to share the gospel, and we know that we are his chosen instruments that he will use to bring his people to himself. Yet when we have opportunities to share the gospel, we shrink back. We want to preserve our comfort. Oh, because it's awkward to share the gospel with people. I always feel so weird, it's uncomfortable, and so I don't want to do it. Or we want to preserve our image. If I share the gospel, they might think less of me or think I'm strange and no longer want to speak to me. So actually, in not sharing the gospel and just living a good life, I'm going to be a better witness because I'll have that relationship. Even though when clearly, they need to know the message about Christ. Simply seeing that you're a good person isn't enough. We want to preserve our own interests. If I share the gospel with my boss, I'll be passed up for promotion. We can sometimes become so preoccupied on preservation, preserving something, that we neglect the purposes of God in evangelism. If I share the gospel in this situation or to this person, I may lose fill in the blank, whatever that is. Or what about involvement in the church? We can sometimes just go into survival mode, you know, and just think, okay, I just need to survive. Work is busy, so I'll go to church on most Sundays, but I can't do anything extra. I'm not going to prayer and worship. I'm too busy, too stressed. I'm not going to join a small group. I'm not going to do any of these extra events. I think I can manage to get to church on Sunday. Great. So we become a quick in, quick out person, not spending time in fellowship, not diving deep into relationship, and neglecting God's purposes for the church. When we do that, when you do that, you suffer, your kids suffer, and the church itself suffers. Christianity is not a go-it-alone religion. It's just me and Jesus. The way that God designed it is for fellowship, the corporate body, the church, to fellowship and serve God together, worshiping together, spurring one another on toward love and good works. But how can the church function as a body if the people who compose it don't invest? I know personally, as we think about the body metaphor for the church, every member is important. I know I'm sure glad that, um, thinking about myself, that my leg shows up every day of the week, not just on Sundays, leaving me to hop around Monday to Saturday, right? So think about the church. This unholy preoccupation with preservation neglects the purposes that God has for the church. So we need to be Involved, invested, not being preoccupied with our own preservation, but investing in the church and fulfilling God's purpose for it. Now, there are a lot of other ways we can also harbor an unholy preoccupation with preservation. God will accomplish his purposes with or without us. We will see that as we go through Genesis But he loves to bless his people by using us as his instruments to do his will. When we become preoccupied with preservation, we are thinking like pagans and neglecting the purposes of God. So let's shift our focus now to Esau. Esau, as we saw in the last chapter, was very preoccupied with blessing. How can I get this blessing? And we see him continue in that vein with an unholy preoccupation with blessing. Verse 6. 
Now Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Padan Aram to take a wife from there, and that as he blessed him, he directed him, you must not take a wife from the Canaanite women, and that Jacob had obeyed his father and his mother and gone to Padan Aram. So when Esau saw that the Canaanite women did not please Isaac, his father, Esau went to Ishmael and took as his wife, besides the wives he had, Mahalath, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nebaioth. So Esau sees Isaac sending Jacob away. He hears what he says to him and finally recognizes, if he hadn't already, that his two current Hittite wives, these Canaanite women, are displeasing to Isaac. So he thinks to himself, of course, that's why my father wouldn't bless me, because I married the wrong, the wrong women. Ah, oh, Esau, how could you be so stupid? You cost yourself the blessing. That's so simple. Oh, if I just go and get a non-Hittite wife, then my father will bless me. Yeah. So what does he do? Esau goes to Ishmael. We all know who he is, the older brother of Isaac, Abraham's other son. And let's just think and remember that story for a second. So... God gives the promise to Abraham. He says, you'll have a son who will carry on your line and I'll fulfill the promises through him. And when that's not happening, they're starting to get old. Uh, Sarah suggests Hagar, his servant. And so they have a child. That's Ishmael. But God says, no, you will have a son through Sarah. And then eventually he does and the promise goes through to Isaac. And so Esau, the older brother who is not supposed to get the promise concocts this plan to go and get a non-Canaanite wife. But where does he go? He goes to Ishmael, the older brother rival of Isaac, the one who almost took the blessing and promise away from Isaac to find a wife. So it's like Esau doesn't understand anything about the promises uh, or the purposes of God. He's so focused on getting this blessing that he goes to the older brother rival of his father for a wife, thinking that that will be the thing that finally makes Isaac happy with him and give him a blessing. Great plan. So Esau compounds sin on sin, and he takes another wife, now three total. So Esau, again, is thinking like a pagan. How can I manipulate this situation to get a blessing? He disregards everything about the situation. And in trying to find the magic formula, only drives himself further into sin and unholiness. Esau's preoccupation with blessing drives a further wedge between him and God. Rather than repenting of his sin and drawing near to God in faith, he compounds sin onto sin. So how often do we fall into the pagan thinking of Esau? Becoming preoccupied with blessing. Maybe if I do X, Y, Z, then God will save me. If I can just be a good enough person in this life, God will save me. But the blessing of God and salvation is not dependent on human works. We know Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, it's by grace that you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Not a single person on earth has ever earned God's favor. We know clearly Esau didn't earn it. What about Jacob? Jacob didn't earn it either. What has he been characterized all of his life up to this point? Lying, deception, not walking in faith, thinking like a pagan. He doesn't deserve it either. And neither do I, neither do you. No person on this earth 
has ever earned God's favor. No single person has ever been good enough or done enough good things for God to save them. Each and every person has sinned against God, rebelled against him, and merited eternal punishment away from the blessing of God. Every single one of us deserves that. Not one of us deserves God to bless us. Salvation, far from being dependent on our works and the things we do to earn God's favor, is dependent on God's grace, dependent on Christ and his work. What did he do? Jesus came to the earth, lived a perfectly righteous life, fulfilled God's law, and then he suffered at the hands of men and was crucified. The sinless Son of God did no wrong, was crucified. And on the cross, the innocent, sinless Lamb of God took the sins of the world onto himself, suffering the wrath of God against sin in the place of those who would believe in his name. He rose again on the third day, conquered sin and death forever, putting our enemies to open shame by triumphing over them. Salvation is dependent on Jesus Christ, on his life, his death, and his resurrection. And now those who turn from their sin and place their faith in Christ experience salvation. They experience the saving blessing of God. So stop thinking like a pagan. Stop thinking that you can manipulate your way into heaven because God has ordained one way of salvation, Jesus Christ. And apart from him, no one comes to the Father. Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. So stop scheming, stop striving, stop thinking like a pagan, but repent of your sin and believe in the name of Jesus Christ. This is the only way to receive God's blessing, and it's all of grace. So we've seen preoccupation with preservation and preoccupation with blessing. Now let's look at an unholy preoccupation with place. Verse 10. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. So here we see Jacob is traveling now. He's on his way from the land of Abraham sojourning, the land which is promised to him, toward Laban, Rebekah's brother, to find a wife. And as night comes, he stops to sleep and he uses a rock as a pillow. How many of you would take a rock for a pillow when you're traveling? No one? I don't know. I know for me, like we were at the GCC conference in Toronto last week. I was looking. There was no really like nice looking rocks on the ground. I don't know if that's a Toronto thing or if there's really no, no rock that could be a nice pillow. Um, but these verses here, and as we look at the, the destitute situation that he's in, uh, just really shows how rough it is on him, what the situation is really like. These verses show the nature of his journey away. As he leaves the inheritance behind, he's a stranger going across the wilderness. He'll be with relatives eventually, but on the journey he has no one to stay with, and so he grabs a rock and lays on the ground. Again, it's important. He's leaving the inheritance, going away from the place which God has promised to bless him, where his older brother, who covets that inheritance, that land, and that blessing, still remains. So it's got to be a really, really sad situation, right? If we think about that, loneliness, questioning God's promises, wondering what went wrong, wondering if that blessing really will be fulfilled. But in this situation, as Jacob is alone and sleeping on 
probably the most uncomfortable pillow anyone has ever slept on. This is where God chooses to meet Jacob. And this is where God chooses to confirm his covenant, to say, yes, this blessing really is for you, and these promises really will come true. And so we read in verse 12, And he dreamed. And behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it. So what's going on here? There are a lot of different interpretations trying to break it down and uh, assign certain meanings to each piece of this dream, like the ladder and the angels and God above it and the earth and all of those different things. And while it would be very fun to explore all of that, we're not going to spend time getting bogged down in those speculative weeds. We're going to try to keep our focus on the main thing here. So what Jacob saw was a ladder, likely more like a staircase than a ladder, with angels going up and down on it, and God standing above it. God has just broken into Jacob's life in a major way. There's connection between heaven and earth. God is really involved in his creation. There's an interesting contrast here with this staircase that Jacob sees and the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. We know that story. The rebellious humanity builds this tower and they say, we're going to build a tower that reaches to the heavens and we're, we'll reach God. And we know they, they get really high and then God sees way down there something's going on and he comes down and he confuses their languages, right? And so we saw that rebellious humanity in its pride cannot reach God. And then we see the opposite here. The ladder in Jacob's dream brought heaven to earth rather than humans reaching up to God and forcing forcing God to reveal himself. God graciously condescends to give grace to an unworthy man. God is the one who takes that initiative. God is the one who condescends to unworthy sinners and humans cannot by their pride gain access to the Lord of hosts. God takes the initiative, and God does that for his purposes in the lives of his people. Verse 13, And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south, and in you and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. So we see there in God's words, he's reiterating, he's confirming the Abrahamic covenant now passed on to to Jacob. That he would receive the land, receive innumerable offspring, and God's very presence would be with him wherever he goes. Such amazing grace to an unworthy man. As Jacob is on his journey away from the inheritance, God reiterates the blessing, the Abrahamic covenant, and promises to be with Jacob, also promising to bring him back, accomplishing the purposes which he has for him. So Jacob can be secure, knowing God is the one who sovereignly fulfills his purposes, watching over Jacob, being with Jacob. Now this theme of presence, going with Jacob, is really important as we think about a preoccupation with place. 
Let's read in verse 16. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So Jacob, on this journey filled with doubt and uncertainty, has just encountered the living God. And rightly, he fears when confronted with a holy God. Because how could any sinner not? Then he proclaims about the place that it is special. It's the house of God. This is where God dwells. This is where God lives. This is where the gateway of heaven is. This is access to God. But perhaps Jacob overemphasizes the place. Because he misses the point of what God just said. God promised to be with him wherever he goes. Promising also to fulfill all the Abrahamic blessings found in the covenant. But Jacob remains preoccupied with place. Not recognizing fully that God will be with him as he goes. He's thinking like a pagan about place. The place is special. The place is special. The place is special. Not, this is the place that God has chosen to reveal himself. And we'll see this preoccupation with place even when we get passed into into Jacob's vow because in his vow he starts to think of God geographically just as pagans think of their false gods geographically. But how often are we preoccupied with place rather than presence? We come to church on Sunday, which is a good thing, but we put on our finest attitudes and our smiles thinking of the most pious and holy thing we can say so that people will think we've got it all together. Wow, that was a profound insight. You're doing well, huh? But what do our lives look like the rest of the week? What do our lives look like Monday to Saturday? Do we not have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, all the way through Saturday, including Sunday as well? As James says in James 4, 8 through 10, the tongue is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. The way we speak is just one example. We can spend all this time on Sundays trying to fool people, and we may be successful in that on Sundays, when all through the week we refuse to worship God in our words and our actions. We think in the sanctuary, in this holy place, watch your words. But once we step out of the doors, we can curse at bad drivers, slander our leaders, gossip about our brothers and sisters. This ought not to be so. Or maybe for you it's more subtle, You're thinking, oh, I never utter those words out loud. That's all in my mind. So it's okay, right? Maybe instead of outwardly voicing your frustration with the drivers, you hate them in your heart, which Jesus says is like murder. Maybe instead of gossiping, you harbor those thoughts in your heart about these other people. We can easily fall into this line of pagan thinking, this unholy preoccupation with place. Because I'm sure that most of us, if not all of us, and I hope all of us, in this room would affirm God's omnipresence, that he's present everywhere. But do we live like that? Our entire lives, every single day, in every single place, are to be worship. We're always worshiping something. 
Proverbs 15, verse 3 says, The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. He sees your conduct not just at church on Sundays, but every single second of every single day. Even further, Paul writes, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. Now, this verse in 1 Corinthians 6 is talking specifically about sexual immorality. But the principle holds true for any sin. Sexual immorality included. The way we speak included. The principle holds true with any sin. God dwells within us as believers. We must not only put on the mask of purity, the mask of pure speech while we're at church, but we need to recognize that God calls for purity in every aspect of our lives, in every place, on every day. Do not become so preoccupied with place and time that you neglect our call to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord in every place and at every time. Let's hold each other to a higher standard than that. Confessing our sins to one another, finding accountability with our brothers and sisters in Christ, spurring one another on everywhere, fulfilling God's purposes for the church. Leaving behind our preoccupation with preservation and investing, and leaving behind our preoccupation with place and extending that participation in the church to every single day, in every single place. We are called to be pure and holy, not just in the church building or at church-related events, but everywhere we go, because God dwells not only in the church building, but in our very hearts. So Jacob sets up a memorial stone. The pillow that he slept on now becomes a pillar of remembrance, as he renames the place formerly called Luz to Bethel, which means house of God. Now, it's good for him to set up this pillar, to do what he can to remember God's words to him. Having a right regard for place is good. We should feel the weight of being in the sanctuary with God's people. But we must not become so preoccupied with place that we forget who God is. Now, we see later, unfortunately, that although Bethel is remembered, it's remembered with an unholy preoccupation on place rather than understanding God's work. We read in 1 Kings 12 that Jeroboam, a king of the northern kingdom, sets up a golden calf in Bethel as a site of idolatrous worship. And it really has a lot of similarities with with Exodus 34, when they set up the golden calf. Jeroboam even basically quotes it, says, This calf, this is your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And they worship at Bethel, idolatrously. Hosea preaches against idolatry at Bethel in Hosea chapter 10. And Amos preaches that God will punish this false worship at Bethel. Now Amos provides a helpful comment for us when he preaches in Amos 5 verses 4 through 6. He says, For thus says the Lord to the house of Israel, Seek me and live, but do not seek Bethel. And do not enter into Gilgal or cross over to Beersheba, for Gilgal shall surely go into exile, and Bethel shall come to nothing. Seek the Lord and live, lest he break out like fire. Do you see the tension between God's presence and the place? 
Seek me and live, but do not seek Bethel. Bethel shall come to nothing. It's not about the place. It's about the God who revealed himself. An unholy preoccupation with place leads to idolatry and sin and judgment. So the final preoccupation we see in this passage is an unholy preoccupation with provision. God has just appeared to Jacob in an amazing way, promising him the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant. And Jacob responds like this, verse 20. Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God, and this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. Now, commentators are sometimes split on the significance of this vow. And I was really wrestling a lot with this, this past week. And some say that it should be, the the if at the start of this sentence should be translated as since. And so Jacob is making a vow of worship and commitment to God born out of faith. Others see it as bargaining with God, questioning his promise and trying to manipulate him into doing what he said he will do. And in my study, as I was wrestling with those two things, what's really going on here? I came to the conclusion that I think it's the latter, that that Jacob is bargaining with God for a couple reasons. First, while it's nice to be optimistic about biblical figures, the reality is that the latter interpretation is more consistent with Jacob's proven character so far. Jacob's just finished lying to his father, cheating Esau of the blessing, and has acted in a dishonest and untrustworthy way. So it makes sense, then, that Jacob would not be trusting God's word here, since Jacob himself has been lying and cheating his way along. Secondly, and related to the first, Jacob has not been a man of faith up to this point. He's been thinking like a pagan, taking God's promise into his own hands, not trusting God to fulfill it himself. But wait, couldn't this event be the turning point for Jacob? Couldn't this be where he changes his mind and starts to walk in faith? Theoretically, it could have been. But I don't think it was, because even after this encounter, we see Jacob taking things into his own hands again and not walking by faith. We do see him get there eventually, but I don't think this is the turning point for him. I think it works towards that direction, but I don't think he's there yet. Thirdly, we know Jacob is living in the midst of a pagan culture and has already shown, along with the members of his family, a clear pagan-mindedness, which leads him to deceive and cheat in the first place. Now here in Jacob's vow, we see still more pagan thinking. And this is where we see some more preoccupation with place in addition to this preoccupation with provision. Because in the ancient world, in pagan thought, the different gods of the different people ruled different geographical regions. Okay? So for Jacob, he has lived in this life, he's lived his life in the land of Isaac, his father, and Abraham, his father, Uh, And this is the land that was promised. This is the land that God said, I will give this to you. So in this vow, as Jacob thinks about leaving that inheritance, going to a different land, he's thinking in himself, man, I'm going to be leaving this God's land, going to a different one. So, like, can he really even make that promise? Because that doesn't really jive with this pagan religious thought. So in this vow, Jacob is saying, really? Really? You'll be with me even when I leave your land and go to another God's land? 
Really? If you do, if you provide me with food to eat, if you provide me with clothing to wear, if you bring me back to this promised land in peace, then you shall be my God. If you do this, then you shall be my God. So Jacob is still thinking like a pagan, bargaining with God, pledging that if God really does have the power to keep this promise and does keep it, then he will serve him. Now the promise that God gives to Jacob in the Abrahamic covenant is God-centered, focusing on the Lord. And then we look at Jacob's vow and we see it's man-centered, built on what he could get from God. So rather than saying, if you do these things, then I will serve you, it should be because of this I will serve you. Affirming faith in God's promises and walking in trust that he will do as he said. I fear that we can sometimes be like Jacob here, preoccupied with provision. We hear the gospel, we're faced with the reality of God, and yet we ask, well, what can you do for me? We can sometimes begin to bargain with God. If you do this, then I will follow you. If you speak to me audibly from heaven, then I will follow you. If you give me this promotion at work, then I will follow you. If you promise not to call me into ministry or missions, then I'll follow you. If you promise me good health and much wealth, then I'll follow you. If you keep my sister from dying, then I will follow you. If you promise that I will never suffer or have any trials ever again, then I will follow you. Now, we can sometimes do this as people who don't know God. Like, I'll only believe in God if he does such and such. But as believers, we can do the very same thing too. I'll only be fully submitted to you, God, if you do this for me. I'll only continue to follow you if you do this for me. Rather than walking by faith, we're focused on what he can do for us. It's a very utilitarian approach. I want to get the most bang for my buck. If I'm believing in you, you better do something for me. But who are we to ask for God to do those things for us? None of us deserve the blessing of God. The list of these bargains we can make with God goes on. What bargain have you made with God? What conditions have you put upon your faith in him and your continued walk in obedience to him? If we're not careful, we could begin thinking like pagans, having an unholy preoccupation with provision, loving the gift more than the one who gave it to us. So the natural next step from these bargains with God is to ask, what happens if you don't get these things? What happens if you get fired from your job? What happens if you get called into overseas missions? What happens if your sister dies? What happens if you wind up getting fired from your job suddenly, losing your family in a tragic accident, and find yourself with nothing at all? If our relationship with God is built on the things we can get from him, then when that foundation is gone, we'll reject God altogether because there was no relationship there in the first place. Who are we to demand God do anything for us? Instead, when we know who God is and we know what he has promised, then even through any immense suffering, any trial that can come to us, we can have hope. If we know God is sovereign, then we know he allowed this to happen. If we know he's all wise, then we know that even when things go differently than we had hoped or planned, God is fulfilling his purposes in them. If we know God's faithful providence, then we know that ultimately all things will work together for good. 
If we know God's promises, then we know that this life on earth is not all there is. And as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 17 and 18, we know that this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look toward as we look not to the things that are seen but to the things that are unseen for the things that are seen are transient but the things that are unseen are eternal this eternal weight of glory is beyond all comparison it makes the suffering in the end seem so small like Paul says in Romans 8.18, 8, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Jesus said we'll face suffering and we'll face persecution. But if we know God, then we know that one day he will make all things new. He will right all wrongs. He will remove sin and pain forever, wipe away every tear, and bring us into the eternal joy of his presence. The glory which shall be revealed in us is beyond all comparison with all of the sufferings and trials that we face. It's light. It's momentary. It's hard. But it's not eternal. Christian, you will face suffering. You will face affliction. You will face trials. Every single person in this room will experience the death of a family member, whether that's in old age or prematurely. Every person in this room will face various disappointments at work, whether that's facing stress and frustration, losing a promotion, or losing the job entirely. Every person in this room will feel the weight of suffering that comes from sin, both in ourselves, our own sin, and in other people, the sins that they commit. But it's my hope that every person in this room will also experience the amazing love, grace, and kindness found in the Lord. The sustaining, strengthening, encouraging joy of the Lord that transcends all of these trials. Remains strong and consistent through them. It's my hope that everyone in this room, when death finally comes, which it will for each and every one of us, that we would enter into the joy of the Lord in which there's no more pain, no more crying, no more sin, and no more suffering. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. Let's look at one final text. Turn in your Bibles to John chapter 1. John 1, is the verse we'll focus on. But as you turn there, this verse, it's right before the wedding at Cana, where Jesus turns water into wine, and it's in the context of Jesus calling his disciples. He calls Philip, and as Philip brings Nathanael to Jesus, Nathanael expresses doubt that anything good could come from Nazareth, where Jesus is from. And when Jesus sees him, he says, starting in verse 47, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. Now listen to this in verse 51. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Does that sound familiar? That language? We read that somewhere before. 
Jesus is clearly referring to Genesis 28. And in this verse, Jesus says to Nathanael and to all the disciples, he uses a plural you in this uh, verse, he promises that they will see angels ascending and descending on him, the Son of Man. Carson comments that to see heaven opened is to be accorded a vision of divine matters. What the disciples are promised then is heaven-sent confirmation that the one they have acknowledged as the Messiah has been appointed by God. Jacob named that place Bethel, but Jesus is the true house of God. Jesus is the true gate of heaven. Jesus is the true place where God reveals himself most clearly. Jesus is where true access to God is found. As with Jacob and his dream, through Jesus is where divine grace comes from God. Through Jesus, God has revealed himself and given us his great and wonderful promises. Through Jesus, he has brought us into the new covenant by his blood, as we heard in communion. Through Jesus and Jesus alone is access to God. So how will you think of Jesus? Will you come to him in faith, repenting of your sin and turning to him in belief? Or will you think like a pagan, preoccupied with preservation, with blessing, with place, with provision? Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. Jesus is the great I am. Jesus is the one sent from the Father, full of grace and truth. So today, come to Jesus. Today, find life in his name. And then every day moving forward, go to Jesus. Believer, go to Jesus. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. Obeying the Lord and seeing his name lifted high. Don't be preoccupied with unholy, pagan thinking. But think as someone whose mind has been renewed by God, seeking him in all things, obeying him always, and finding in Jesus everything you will ever need. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the opportunity to open it, to read it, to let it soak our minds and our hearts. God, I pray that you would work in each one of us by your Holy Spirit. Open our hearts to what you would have us do based on what you've said to us in your word. Lord, I pray that you would convict and that this conviction would not just be a spiritual high this morning, but it would go with us forwards that we can live in accordance with your word. I pray that you would also encourage, Lord, remind us of the gospel, that we've been saved by grace through faith because of Christ, that as he, was, as he died and was buried and was raised, that we were also buried and raised with him, the old self gone and the new creation has come. Lord, help us to walk forward in this newness of life doing everything unto the Lord. For your glory we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon from Redemption Church, Calgary North. We exist to see lost people saved, saved people matured, and mature people multiplied, all to the glory of God. For more information, visit us online at redemption.ca.